At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As far as the gospel, we'll get back to that question. But what a question it is. We're going to first, though, visit a couple of trivia questions that I want to ask you right now. Test your memory. Number one, what 20th century personality said, I am the greatest? I said even before I knew. <laughs> Whoa, who said that? Oh, <laughs> very good, very good. Okay, here's the second one. Yes, if you didn't hear that, that was the heavyweight boxing legend, Muhammad Ali, one of my favorites. And here's another trivia question. Who said this? Pride goeth before, a, before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Not so quick to jump on this one. I'll give you a hint. Um, it's a proverb. So who said probably most of the proverbs? Solomon, yes, Saul, that's who it was, King Solomon. King Solomon, um, and if you guessed both of those correct in your mind, you should be proud of yourself, but not too proud, because you know where that leads. So since the time that we credit, anyway, Solomon for coming up with, or at least coining that saying, pride comes before a fall, it's been passed down generation to generation in that shortened form that we know. Pride comes before a fall. It's one of those wise biblical sayings that has morphed its way into our common American vocabulary. So in everyday chatter, you might hear people quote that phrase and they don't even realize it's found in the Bible. And the truthfulness of this saying, that is the actual fall part that you witness after the prideful boast is put out there, well, we've all seen that too. We can vouch for its truthfulness, whether we're talking about pride getting the best of our neighbor, our coworker, family member, or perhaps if you're not too proud to admit it, you've seen how this saying has even played out in your own life from time to time. Pride comes before a fall. By the way, hubris and all, I'm not saying that Muhammad Ali was wrong about his own greatness. As someone else has said, it's not bragging if it's true. All right, but record-wise, just looking at the record, out of Ali's 61 heavyweight bouts, he did lose five of them. As a point of fact, there's only one professional heavyweight champion who never counted a single loss against him his whole career through. Any guesses on that one? Yeah, who said that? That's a, yes, very good back there. You get a pair of boxing gloves. Rocky Marciano, 49 wins, zero losses, where 43 of those were knockouts. You did not want to get in the way of one of his uppercuts. That real-life Rocky was also the inspiration behind director-actor Sylvester Stallone's movie franchise of the same name, which you probably guessed. One more interesting note on this, though. In a post-retirement interview, Rocky Marciano was candid enough to admit that if they could somehow ever arrange a meeting in the ring between Ali and himself, and they were both in their prime, Rocky Marciano expressed his belief that Muhammad Ali would have beaten him. That's an impressive admission, isn't it? And a humble one, I might add. You hardly hear 
that kind of honest talk nowadays. You also heard from this real-life Rocky, or you would um, not hear, rather, any of the silly self-promoting ditties about himself, like float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, the hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. None of that for Rocky. But for Ali, why, he reveled in these made-up rhymes, and we loved him for it. Okay, yes, uh, we either love Muhammad Ali for all his self-congratulatory antics, or we found his self-focused smugness at times quite off-putting, depending on how charitable a mood we were in at the time, I suppose. It's interesting how all the self-promotion works, or doesn't work in many cases. Christian author C.S. Lewis, known for the famous Chronicles of Narnia, also devoted an entire chapter to this issue of pride in another very popular book of his, Mere Christianity, originally published way back in 1952, and it still sells quite well here in the 21st century. Over three and a half million copies sold just in the 21st century alone. Chapter 8 on this matter of pride, Lewis entitled, The Great Sin. There we find some pertinent observations that bring clarity, not only to the self-aggrandizing samples of people you might encounter out there in everyday life, but perhaps even more importantly today, we'll find that his treatment also sheds some good light on the big question brought to Jesus by his disciples, namely, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That question says a lot about the one asking it. Do you know any narcissists in your life? The term narcissist, narcissism, has gained significant currency uh, in recent years, and I'm not sure if that's due at least partially to modern technology, right, which has given us the smartphone with the trusty self-pick feature always at the ready, This selfie we can now so easily upload to our various social media platforms. That is, if the picture passes the flattery test. Does it flatter me? Then we can caption it all off with some compelling line, less than 46 characters, of course. Something like, here's me at breakfast. I hate wheat toast. Imagine how worried our subscribers, our constituency would have been had they only seen a half-eaten piece of toast on our Instagram feed without that timely and vital explanation provided. Our public awaits each earth-shattering update with bated breath. Yes, you may have noticed a little sarcasm coming through on that one. While I do not believe that any one of these pieces of modern technology can take the whole blame for creating a culture of narcissism. They do, however, seem to kindle that unholy fire within. Yes, indeed, it is unholy. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes it. The vice that I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Then Lewis adds, According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. 
Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Remember what we're talking about from uh, last week's gospel. Peter tried to talk Jesus out of the cross then. And Jesus immediately and rather shockingly rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm sure that one must have hit Peter hard, like a Rocky Marciano body shot to the ribcage. But Jesus only speaks the truth in love. And we must remember that even when it comes to a stern rebuke. Paul wrote, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. He wrote that to Timothy. So we can rest assured when it comes to being rebuked by the word of God, Jesus being the word made flesh, even that rebuke is for our correction and our training in righteousness. It's for our own good. One definition of narcissism goes like this. Selfishness involving a sense of entitlement, a lack of empathy, and need for admiration or characterizing a personality type committed to these things. Well, that's indicting because what we see going on here with the disciples in today's gospel is remarkably parallel to all of that. Jesus is coming up to his third attempt now to explain and prepare his disciples for the horror that is about to go down in their fast approach to Jerusalem. Both in chapter 16 and in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus says something like this to his disciples. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of evil men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is predicting his passion, his suffering on his way to be crucified. He also predicts his resurrection from the dead three days later. Arguably, these two days, the first Good Friday and the first Easter, are the most significant days ever on planet Earth. But Jesus gets no empathy from his disciples, his 12 companions, for three years. In Gethsemane, they won't even be able to stay awake to pray for him at his request. He actually pleads with them while sweating great drops of blood in his anguish. So that lack of empathy fits the above description. No empathy there. Not only that, but the disciples here in today's gospel also evidence a selfishness involving a sense of entitlement. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to shoulder all the sins of mankind, horrible sins, ones that we don't even like to mention sometimes. And for this, Jesus will be forsaken by his Father, with whom he had up to this moment enjoyed an eternity of loving harmony, perfect unity, along with the Holy Spirit to round out the Holy Trinity. But now... As a descendant of, Jesus, of David, Jesus will be crowned king of the Jews. And as a descendant of Adam, that crown will be a crown of thorns, pressed down with the full weight of the earth's curse, going all the way back to the pride, that great sin that came before the fall of mankind into sin's bondage and darkness back in the Garden of Eden. All that crushing weight will now fall on Jesus the sin bearer. All this, all of this, while his disciples 
jockey for favors and for the best seats in the kingdom to come? Are Jesus' disciples narcissists? Well, I guess you could say that it depends upon your definition. According to the Google definition that I quoted earlier, it would seem, yes, guilty as charged. That's not a charge you predict Jesus' disciples to be guilty of, is it? I mean, of all people, these 12 are abandoned brothers who left their homes. They left their jobs to follow Jesus wherever he may lead them. These are the sent out ones who, in Matthew chapter 10, did battle against Satan and his infernal brigade of demons. They cast out demons. And now one of the leaders, Peter, is accused by Jesus himself of working with the devil. I guess if Jesus' original 12 disciples can be found guilty of this me-first pride, of this narcissism, well, then it stands to reason it's very possible that we, 21st century disciples, could also be found guilty of that anti-God state of mind, as Lewis describes it, the sin of pride. But what could be done to remedy this precarious situation we find ourselves in? Jesus took a child. He put him right there in the midst of his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Upon hearing the part about becoming like children, this is where the disciples, like everybody else in their day, Jew or Gentile, all break out in laughter, but not Jesus. I imagine if it were not for the serious look on our Lord's face as he said this, plus introducing it with that selective use of truly I tell you, attention-getting intro, that means the disciples curtail whatever laughter they would have mustered otherwise. That would have been a very serious mistake on their part, but the whole thing still made no sense to them because children in their day did not count. And I mean literally, in Matthew's recording of both the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 14, and the feeding of the 4,000, chapter 15, children literally did not count, neither did women. Children were not the mommy's little precious that we, they would become in some Western societies millennia down the timeline. Unlike today, children in first century Israel were considered property. They were burdensome, and they had no rights, no standing until the males became productive adults at about age 13. Grown-up women still didn't fare all that well, but they were better off than children. So here is Jesus now, confusing Rabbi Jesus, once again turning things on their head, and now teaching us that children are the role model for, and they are the greatest in, the kingdom of heaven? The disciples certainly did not see that one coming. So what is it about children that makes them so great and so right to use as a role model for entering the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is clear. He doesn't beat around the bush about it. He comes right out and says, look, what you all need to do and what you are all finding so difficult to do, this little child does so beautifully, so naturally, 
This child is your role model in humbling yourselves, okay? Humble yourselves like this child. Because if you don't humble yourselves like this child, you are not even getting into the kingdom of heaven. What's more, if any of you cause this little one to stumble on his way into the kingdom, well, it would be better for you to have a giant millstone around your neck, the kind that the donkeys turn around to grind grind grain. It'd be better for you to have that as your necklace and thrown into the deepest sea. Are we clear here, boys? Wow. I think Jesus and that unnamed child made quite an impression that day, don't you think? When I encounter an unnamed individual in Holy Scripture, I often take it as an invitation for me to insert my own name into the narrative, especially if it is calling us to be like that unnamed individual. But Jesus doesn't tell us any more than that here. And notice what else Jesus doesn't tell us. He doesn't try to paint a picture of this child as the virtuous one. You know, the most innocent most morally virtuous. Uh, That's not how he uses the child. And Jesus is quite aware of the two-year-olds in his own generation, right? They had two-year-olds back then. Jesus knew full well that Adam's sinful nature is passed down in childbirth to all Adam's progeny, time immemorial. So it's not the kid's moral virtue virtue that's exemplary. It's rather, and it's not his innocence, it's rather his neediness. The child's always in need. And with that, this needy child who can't feed himself or provide his own shelter and warmth, this little child simply cannot survive all on his own at that tender age. So with simple faith, what does the child do? This little one simply trusts someone else outside of himself to take care of all his needs. He trusts his mother and father. But the picture Jesus paints using this completely dependent child is a broader picture of our own dependency upon God. God, our Heavenly Father, promises to take care of us, to feed us, to nurture us, and to receive us even as we receive him by faith. Simple trust. We complicate that relationship by the time we grow up, don't we? So this child then becomes the perfect example of how and how simple it can be. This call to simply trust in God's care for us goes all the way back in Matthew's gospel to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have to go to chapters 5 and 6. And there, you might recall Jesus teaches his disciples and the eavesdropping multitudes all about God's active love and care for his children. Quote, do not be anxious about your life, Jesus taught them, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? On that occasion, Jesus pointed not to the children in the Sermon on the Mount, but to the birds of the air for whom God so tenderly cares. And then he asked his disciples, are you not of more value than they? And the answer to that is key. Because if you measure value on the basis of what one is willing to pay, well, it's very humbling indeed. From Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Our Heavenly Father gave up His only Son for you. The Son humbled Himself and on the cross gave His life as a ransom payment for you. Proceeding from both the Father and the Son now is the Holy Spirit whom God sends to you to soften your proud heart and to turn you in repentance back to him in childlike faith and humility. He's done all that, and he stands ready to forgive you upon your honest confession. What confession is that exactly? Lewis concludes chapter 8 on the great sin with these words. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell them the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step it is, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before that step. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. And for that sin, Jesus died, too. Amen. And now may he who began this good work in you bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.